Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Ireland's classic hits. But first, a topic that is extremely close to my heart. Because as you know, I've explained on numerous occasions that I was born in a mother and baby home. Now we heard the news today that the Mother and Baby Home Institution's payment scheme bill 2022, which has been kind of kicked down the road for the God knows how many years now, was finally signed into law this morning by Michael D. Higgins. Some people might think that's good news, other people think it's bad news because it doesn't do exactly what it was required or set out to do in the first place. And Roderick O'Gorman, I suppose that's at his feet. But we're talking to Alison O'Reilly, who joins me now. Alison O'Reilly from the Irish Examiner. Good evening to you. Good evening, Niall. Thanks for having me. Once again, it's we must have spoken about this at least six times over the last two years, or probably more, Alison. But finally, we're at a point where the President has signed the legislation. So firstly, the good news, what does that mean for those who are waiting for this compensation? Well, they're still waiting. Um, <laughs> we, don't, we don't know when this is going to actually roll out and when everybody's going to receive their money for the ones who do want to receive money. Um, so it just means that the, the law has been passed, this redress um, mm-hmm. scheme for mother and baby institutions. It's an act now, 2023, and um, waiting a long time for that compensation scheme. But, you know, it's a very controversial scheme as well. Um, the, the biggest in the history of the state is going to cost around $800 million. Um, but, you know, it's controversial in the sense that there are in and around 68,000 people who went through these mother and baby institutions that we know of, um, but only around half of them are entitled or eligible to apply for this scheme. Um, and that boils down to the Act itself, which bizarrely states that if you were in a mother and baby home less than six months, you're not entitled to that money. Or if you were boarded out or fostered, it would be now, um, you're also not entitled to that payment, even though fostering is within the care of the state. Um, So any child who's been fostered, their parent is the state. So, you know, it's caused huge upset for people, illegal adoptees. They're not going to get any payment at all. So... That's where it stands, but we still don't know when exactly you can apply for it. Okay, so is there a suggestion, well, I don't think there is a suggestion that the law is going to be amended because amended amendments were suggested before the bill was passed and before the President signed it. So it looks like that's it. It, it. it looks like, so. sadly, for those who are campaigning to get those under six months, and by the way, nobody has any idea why they said the six months would be discounted from this piece of legislation because experts and psychologists, and we had one on the air, said that those first six months in a child's life, that bond, that time when a baby bonds with a mother, you know, can have a devastating or a traumatic effect on a child for the rest of their life or certainly a memorable effect for the rest of their life. So this idea that they, and they said, the Minister of State, I remember, over here in prime time, saying that, you know, they had evidence from, well, I don't know who they got their evidence from, that under six months really it doesn't have any lasting effects. But that's just nonsense. I mean, I even know that. Yeah. You know, like I'm the mother of an adopted child. An attachment severs the minute you are removed from your primary carer. That's it. Mm. And your body holds that trauma. Obviously, it's more severe uh, the, the longer you've been with the primary carer. However, you know, that one-to-one nurturing, um, mm-hmm. there's damage there. Even if you don't remember it, your body remembers it. And it makes me laugh and it also makes my blood boil because 
the attachment theory is something that TUSLA and uh, adoption social workers teach in their adoption social worker classes here when people are applying to adopt. So, you know, it just makes my blood boil that on one hand, a state agency like the Child and Family Agency, who, as you know, I'm not a big fan of, um, <laughs> no. um, they're teaching this attachment theory within their adoption courses and they're putting all the emphasis on this attachment and bonding and the whole lot. And then on the other hand, they're just completely... It's not really that important after all. Yeah, when it, when it, when it means paying out money, it's not really that important after all. And I suppose the other Absolutely. thing is... Absolutely, and I always say, Niall, it boils down to whatever the state says at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the main reason I'm believing that, well, I should believe that the compensation should be paid out to people in this respect is that many of the people, almost most of the people, by the way, who were adopted out to mother and baby homes would have had a different life if indeed we had financial supports for single mothers or unmarried mothers, as they were known as in those days, you know, to help them keep their children. Because, of course, it was in the Constitution that a mother should not have to go to work to necessitate looking after her child economically. But we didn't do that, and we didn't provide for those mothers under the Constitution. I wonder, by the way, would they have a case against the Constitution of the country because we didn't provide for them? We basically said, you can't afford to keep the baby, so we're going to give it away to somebody else who can. And so all those children, leaving aside whether they're six months, whether they're two months, they all um, would have had a different life had they have been, you know, with their parents or with their biological mother. Yeah, as you know, the law changed, you know, um, to support single parents, lone parents to mm-hmm. keep their child, which is the best outcome for the child if it's possible. Um, there are obviously some mothers who chose to give up their child and they, I'm sure, have made those decisions uh, a very, very, very challenging decision to make, but they wouldn't have made it without some deep thought some people were just not in the position to rear their children, and that still happens today. However, they should have the choice, you know, if you want to keep your child. But remember, at that time, Niall, you as a single parent or a lone parent, you weren't suitable to rear your own child. You weren't really a proper child. No. You were kind of half a child. <laughs> and they, yeah. you know, and this is how the state and the church looked at, at lone parents. You know, the Constitution favours the married couple. The mar- children of married babies were a little bit more, married families were a little bit more special than what they called the illegitimate babies. I, I, was, I was going to mention the word illegitimate. That's mm-hmm. on the paperwork that I got from uh, Tussla going back about seven or eight years ago, although I must uh, ring them up or try and get under freedom of information, anything else they have on me. But there was three little bits of card and on one of the cards was, it had my name, my mother's name, and the word illegitimate. And, you know, those kind of names, like the other name Bastard, of course, was, was sent around as well. Those kind of, those kind of uh, degrading names were used for children uh, who were born to a single parent. Uh, and that's the way society looked at it, because that's the way society were told to look at it. Oh, it was just totally frowned upon. As I yeah. said, you know, you were re- weren't really a proper child. You were an illegitimate child. And if yeah. you were the child of a married couple, you had more rights than another baby who was uh, born to a single parent. And so the child suffered as a result of your marital status. And they had lifelong implications. And as you know, as a, an adult adoptee, those scars remain. And, and no matter what avenue you take in life, mm. there, there is damage there. There is damage and hurt there. And there is a wound and um, because you were separated from your primary carer, all because your 
mother wasn't married. And mm. it's really just, I'd love to know who came up with this nonsense. But then again, it was church and state. The, the, the church ruled this country and wasn't regulated or governed well, the church, by... Well, the church the came state. up with the moral laws and the state dealt with it. But the state washed its hands at it and basically said, here, you look after yeah. them. You look after them. You know what I mean? They're your rules. Yeah, well, you know? A crisis. Yeah. But the other thing as well is, at least the one thing about, well, and I say the one good thing, it's that there's nothing really good about the redress scheme, really. But the one thing about it is the idea that they were kicking it down the road in the hope that people would die off. I mean, you can claim this on behalf of a relative, if it's, for, for example, your mother, um, you know, who was in a mother and baby home, for example. You can claim on behalf of a relative living or dead. Now, when they say living or dead, is that only from the point the bill was brought in? Or if your mother died seven years ago or ten years ago, how far back does living or dead mean? Or is there a rule to that? Yeah, you see, there's where the statute of limitations and all of these things come in. And again, the fine print is so, so confusing. You'd ask one minister something and they'll say, yes, you can go back way back, way, way back. But the act only came in this year. And there, there needs to be clarity on who can claim for that because Chrissy Tully is 91. She doesn't believe she's going to ever see the end of this um, mm. and that it, the, the weight will go on to her son who's adopted, but they're reunited now. Um, will he be able to apply for her? Okay, she is alive now as the act comes in. She may not be alive by the time it rolls out. What will the state say to, to Patrick Knock and then? These are the things that we need a real firm clarity on. But surely, um, surely if they're putting that in the legislation on behalf of a relative living or dead, well, then surely mm. they must have put a timeline in. I don't think they did, to be honest. But, uh, it, you know, it's always a case of applying and waiting and see, because you just don't know. And again, Niall, the, the rollout hasn't even been set up. That's you what I'm know? saying. So there's no portal. I, I'm assuming this is going to be done oh, to an no, online portal. No, no, and here's no, the other thing, no. right? So it's going to be, I imagine it's going to be done to an online portal, right? And um, that's the way everything is done nowadays. I mean, a lot of these people are all going to be in their 80s and 90s. Do you know what I mean? And okay, some might have sons and daughters that will help them out, figure it all out. But I mean, a lot of them might be single. They might be widowed. You know, they mightn't have children. Um, some of them can't write. No. Read. So, so is there going to be, a, you know, a helpline? Is there going to be someone to help them to do it manually over a phone? I mean, I, I there seems to be complete lack of transparency and information in relation to this. The president signs a bill this morning that nobody knows anything about, really. Well, you see that the whole thing is very confusing for people, and I and I, I will uh, point to the email sent out by Roderick O'Gorman to survivors and families. Makes me laugh, families and advocates. He said, one final point that has come to my attention is that it appears that some legal firms are advertising services to assist in applying for the scheme. I do not anticipate that anybody needs to avail of such services as the application process will be straightforward and the responsibility to check for records lies with the chief deciding officer, not the applicant. Um, So, you know, I find that line very strange because if it was my mother... I'd have to sit down and help her. And she's an intelligent woman who can read and write. Yeah. But it's a form. And I mean, you know, your form, well, we, we don't have a clue what the forms are going to say, but I mean, I'm sure it's going to... When were you know, born? <laughs> your date of birth. When were you born and who are, and you know, and, and where were you and how long were you in there? A lot of people don't even know how long they were in there. Mm. Um, and I would expect that people are going to apply anyway. Um, because 
you know. And chat, well, I mean, if you were, if you do think you're under six months, apply anyway. Chance your arm. Apply anyway. I would. I, well, oh. if, you, if that's what you want to do, I would apply anyway because yeah. I just don't understand how some people don't even have correct records. Some people don't have any records. So how are they going to deal with people who? On one hand, they say you can't apply if you weren't in there. Or, you know, if you were in there under six months, you're not eligible because you're not damaged. You're grand. You're fine. But um, yet, on the other hand, some people don't even have the records and don't know how long they're in there. I heard Richard Boyd Barrett talking about this and they're trashing it out in um, the doll. And he was like, you know, I was born in a mother and baby home in England. I couldn't. I don't know paperwork. I don't know how long I was there. <laughs> you know. So how can I? Like, so that that ripples. You know, he's not the only person that's in that situation. Um, I mean, I so, but somebody's just texted in here actually and said, could you ask Alison, how do I find out how long I was in there? Well, I think, Alison, the answer to that is contact Tussla, isn't it? It's contact Tussla and get in the, get in the queue. And I, I, I'm sorry to sound abrupt, but get in the queue and wait maybe two years to find out. Because if, I, I don't know, maybe the easier way is to try and estimate, look, I think I was in there from here to here. And let the state find out, because the state are the ones with the records. But I mean, think what what I'm thinking about this, right? Yeah. Look, they they promised with the tracking and trace system initially that anybody who put in a request would have their request uh, uh, dealt with within six weeks. But that's a disaster. That's what I'm saying. No, six months was the average wait time. So, and that's not even this amount of people. We're talking, as you mentioned, 67,000 people. So I don't know how many staff they've assigned to this to be deciding officers, as you called them earlier on. Because yeah. I'm assuming everybody's name is not on a computer. You know what I mean? So, no. No, oh it's God, all on paper. No. You know what I mean? It's going to be start from scratch and, and bleed all over the floor and then we'll decide, you know, oh, sorry, you know, you've just missed out by a day. Yeah, where's yeah. Oh, hold on? I see what your name is. Oh, there it is over by the fridge. Hang on. Just, yeah, sorry yeah. now. I'm mixed up with someone else. But it, it's such a mess because, you know, this birth and tracing bill and all of this apply and we'll have your records in no time. They haven't had people's records in no time. No, I know people somebody I know somebody who applied for their father and they were waiting six months. Now, in fairness, they did get a letter in the interim on two occasions apologising for the delay. That, there you yeah, go. Yeah, they, well, they were understaffed. I mean, I don't know how many staff they allotted to it, but they were completely well, I understaffed. I understand how they're understaffed when that birth and tracing bill is coming here. Years and years and years they're mm. talking about it. And then when it is finally passed, it's a scramble, isn't it? It's just yeah. a scramble. Like, why they didn't, they never fully start for anything. I mean, they might as well have just left it the way it was. Do you know, I don't know what change it's made other than you can get your birth cert, but I just, yeah. really is deeply frustrating for people because this is your identity. This is who you are. And surely it's a basic human right to know who you are and to at least have your medical records. Like in England, you can just apply for your birth cert. There's no big chit-chat and a big long meeting with a social worker. And look, I'm not ruling that out. Obviously, it's very shocking for a lot for of people. For some people, yeah, who do, they, don't deal with that information. Yeah. yeah, and they do appreciate meeting somebody and having some counselling or support while they're going through the process. Of course, that's there. But for people like me, who doesn't need that stuff? If I was adopted, I don't think I'd be... I wouldn't be looking for any no, counselling. No, just give me the bloody thing. Give me my records, please. <laughs> yeah. But... I just, I just really do sympathise with people because, oh, look, everybody's different and everybody wants to deal with it in their way and we have to be respectful for that. Some people are mm. absolutely point blank, do not want to apply for the redress. Other people are absolutely adamant that they should have it. Other people have been excluded. 
just down to the individual what they want to do. But I do think it's going to be a confusing process um, for people applying for it. Um, and I think that's why a lot mm. of people, there's been an influx of people applying to solicitors who are going to do kind of group applications because a lot of people don't understand how to fill out the forms. And a lot of people can't read and write from that era. Not all of them, but there are people with challenges. There are people with special needs. There are people who need support filling out applications. Mm. Or just even old. If no yeah. challenges. You know what I mean? Yeah. So and, and by the way, but, my 76-year-old mother would need yeah. a hand filling out a form. Finally, the, the amounts of money now, obviously there was, there was very little satisfaction uh, generally with recipients in, rela- in relation to the amounts that are going to be paid out. They're very low amounts, unless you're a mother that was there a long time. In relation to the children, they're very low amounts. Um, very low. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand this is going to cost the taxpayer money. I mean, but look, the taxpayer needn't be looking at the adoptees to give out. Look at the government. They're the ones who made the mistake. Yeah. You know, exactly, the... yeah, and uh, you know the nuns should be contributing to this. And they didn't. Look, they didn't. Should I mean they're still, you know, they've donated I think two million to the excavation in June, which hasn't happened, and I can't see that happening for another five years. But and and now know, there's that's... a suggestion, by the way. I know you've probably been following it. Sorry, just to to go off the track slightly, mm. but there's a suggestion that they found another grave now. Where was that in Carlow or somewhere, or where was the other grave found? No, Is in a story of the weekend. No, it's Sean Ross Abbey. So it's not a grave found exactly. Basically, what happened there was Sean Ross Abbey would have had 1,090 babies registered as dying there. Now, there's only 1,024 in the official register. So the GRO, General Death, Births, Deaths and Marriages. Um, as you know, a lot of these mother and baby homes, nuns had two ledgers. Uh, which obviously leads to the whole idea of the falsification of records and baby traffic and all sorts. But obviously there's no evidence of any of that according to the Commission of Inquiry. So basically, Sean Ross Abbey has an angel's burial plot there. And there's something like 42 remains of babies possibly in coffins were found in the angel's plot there. But there's 1,090 babies in two ledgers that have died there. So in 2019, I covered for the Mail on Sunday the scan of the angels' plot there. However, survivors were not happy that only a part of the angels' plot was scanned. So two separate groups are scanning the grounds. So um, Rachel Kyo had organised a campaign to um, raise funds with um, an independent group to scan the grounds of of Sean Ross Abbey. Separately, the group run by Teresa Collins, who is a survivor from Sean Ross Abbey, um, in the group We Are Still Here, have received money from the government to scan the grounds. But in the meantime, this independent scan with Rachel Kiro and her campaigners, they went in in May with the same engineers who scanned the two mother and baby home grounds. Now, they have not found a mass grave. They have found two two or three anomalies, one huge one, 20 metres by two metres. That's particularly large. Yeah. In the same grounds where the Mother and Baby Home Commission found 42 coffins. Now, I've asked the government about this independent scan. They said they're not aware of it and whatever. But basically... An anomaly means an unnatural movement of the soil underneath the ground. So that could be which anything. Which requires, yeah. So 
So it requires further testing and further testing to find out. It, ma- it mightn't be anything now, but it is an unnatural movement of the soil. And, the and then what do they do? Sorry, I don't know the mechanics of all this. So when they find an unnatural, so they use things like sonar, yeah, so sonar. They do like I mean. a heat-seeking yeah. penetration So And the then they, do they take it like a core then of the, do they dig so down? So what happens then is the, the engineers, TST engineers, have recommended further testing. So instead of going in there and excavating the whole land, you can do a less invasive yeah, take um, a core sample. Yeah. So it's like a slit trench yeah. where they basically slit the ground and trench it and they can then put down cameras and heat-seeking treatment that will be able to identify remains. Right, okay. They'll be able, so they could say, so the next step should be slit trenches of this massive anomaly. And that's how it starts. So it's a process. GDP or scan or GP ground penetrating scan. Um, and then it's, Slit trenches and then a full excavation or retrieval of remains. But they've identified a massive anomaly. Um, but it could be anything, Niall. However, it could be something. And it really needs to be slit trenched to rule it in or out. And I'd be very keen to know why that well, I, wasn't. You know, between me and you and Alison, I, I think there's babies buried all over this bloody country, to be honest. I mean, you look at oh, St. Patrick's home right. is the biggest of them all, for God's sake. God, yeah. well, we'll never know with St. Patrick's because there's housing estates there now no. built on top of it. No. So we'll never no. know. Uh, up to 6,000 babies, they reckon, from, from St. Patrick's. And again, they're just going to be in the big old pauper's graves in, mm. in Glasnevin. Yeah. God only knows. The only good thing about Glasnevin is. They have a record of every single burial on background, mm. and that's the difference. Yeah. You know, because I I know what um, they so. I, I I remember looking at my these bits of card. I was sick for like five months, and I was in St Kevin's. Now I think St Kevin's is James's hospital, isn't it? Yeah, and that was attached to St Patrick's Mother and Baby Home. Yeah, that's what they called it, St Kevin's Hospital. Yeah, and um, they had a couple of hospitals. I think I think they had one down the road as well from St Patrick's, but. Um, definitely, James's hospital was attached to. to yeah, I looked on my on my notes. It said he wasn't thriving, so they sent me to oh, St. Kevin's, and then I was sent well, back and I forward a few times. That, you know, I know, you know, I know, I know. I was, like yeah, I was. You know? I, I think I was fourteen or fifteen months when I was eventually adopted. But and the reason I think I was probably that it took that long was because I was in and out of the hospital so many times. You know. That's a long time to mm. be out to be without a primary carer. Yeah, and I, I think I know this kind of sounds really daft, and it's just me and you talking. Nobody's listening, but I know this kind of sounds <laughs> daft. But I think the effect it can have on somebody, and I think the effect it has on me personally is that when you're a baby and you know your mother picks you up and hugs you and holds you close and all that kind of, that bonding that you, that you talk about. And I remember we spoke to, to Catherine Hallisey here, who's a, a psychologist on the air from, she's based in Cork. And she said the first months are incredibly important. But I think you miss out on that. And when you miss out on that then, I think you try to make up for it for the rest of your life. And like, Karen will tell you, my wife, what I'm like, I'm like, I have to be close all the time. I'm, I, there's an insecurity, a definite insecurity. And I think that comes from that. It may. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. Oh, but if, I mean, you know, attachment issues. I've, I've absolutely no doubt that it is something that you should explore because the first year of a baby's life is the most important year for nurturing and, and, and bonds and um, attachment. It's 
it is the most any there isn't a child psychology book in the world that won't tell you that. Um, and when so you see those pictures of St. Patrick's Home and all these, you know, these line of 40 cots, you know, and, and maybe two nuns walking around, you know, you know, those babies are probably crying every now and again and nobody's picking God. them up. You know what I mean? No, no, no comfort. And, and babies, you know, learning to self-regulate is, is awful. You're not supposed to, you know, that's not supposed to happen. You're meant to nurture your little one, you know, and mm. that one, one-to-one is very, very important. Um, and then it's different with an adopted child because I adopted my son at 13 months. So he had done a year without a one-to-one. And they tell you then with an adopted baby, um, it's completely different. Instead of after a year, you know, when you're trying to instill independence into a baby and you're trying to mm-hmm. leave the room and move away. And instead with an adopted baby, I literally carried that child around on my hip the whole time. So you overcompensate. Time. Yeah. Yeah, you do the one-to-one, the, the eye contact and, you know, the touch and feel and smell, the whole lot. Like, so there was an, like he was, <laughs> we're very close, me and my son. Yeah. Um, but like I've, you know, I've always been very, very open with him yeah. that he's adopted, and yeah. you know, his mother has a very special place in our heart and yeah. is remembered all the time. His family, not just his mother, his father, his family. Yeah. Um. I like I am a big believer in fathers' rights, and I think it's very important that um. Mm-hmm. And as you know, adult adoptees, they they don't just want to know who their mother is. A lot of them want to know who their father is. Of course. Um, well, I have no idea. Who, I have no idea who father is. Never. I never found yeah, out. Yeah, and I, I do think that's a very important thing. Mm. I like. I just. I really do believe in fathers' rights. I think it's extremely important that a child knows who they are, and it. It shouldn't always be left to the mother to decide that the father is just as equal. I believe. And you know, um, I know a lot of people and, say at the time, you know, that you know those mothers went into mother and baby homes. Oh, where were the men? Abandoned them. Well, in a lot of cases, those well, we men. Don't know. Well, they were, they, they, a lot of cases, they were forced to abandon them. It was like, you get out of here. You have nothing to do with this. Come, off you go. Get out. You have to get Here's my daughter pregnant. Yeah. But also, some, some men didn't know that yeah. they were dads. Yeah. Um, like, you you don't know. I'm not saying all... You can't say all dads were bad. You can't say that. Yeah. You know, you cannot say that. But some of them were, yeah, well, clearly. Of course. Yeah. But there were some bad mothers, too, you know. Yeah. You can't just say all dads are bad, you know. And yeah. um, I don't think that's fair. And I think, you know, there's there was look, it was case by case. It was case by case. And obviously there were men who took advantage. There were sexual assault and rape and abuse. There were priests and politicians involved in all of this who didn't give a damn. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I've no doubt there were good, there were good Which men. Which there were guards that didn't give a damn. I spoke to a guard. He was a, he was a sergeant across the road from St. Patrick's Home on the Navan Road, the guard station across the road. And he said that fellas were coming to him and saying, There's something weird going on over there. I don't like the look of it. Leave them to it. They know what they're doing. And that was the kind of attitude because they were the church yeah, and yeah, they knew best. Yeah. You know? Turn a blind eye. Yeah. And that what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And a lot of people did that. A lot of people did that. Mm. Um, but I do think it's it is really important to know who you are. And it's important to have that information. Whether you want it or not, it should be available to you. But the redress scheme, Niall. <laughs> yeah, sorry, just <laughs> to get back to so we, we better yeah. wrap this up with the redress scheme. No, so have you, Addy, I mean, Alison, you know, I know uh, you, no. you, you, I'm sure you're going to be writing about it in the Irish Examiner tomorrow, but uh, the thing about it is you're the expert. I've 
I've been banking on you for years. <laughs> I've, I've been banking on you for years to give me all the information on this. And yet nobody has any information. If you don't have it, nobody does. So they come out with no, the stories. It's not there. It's not there. No. But that's I mean, bonkers. The end of the year is always kind of what... We didn't, yeah, we didn't we heard that, that last year and the year before. Yeah. 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 The end of the year. And yeah. A number, a number of months will be needed to transition to a live scheme. There you go. A uh, number of months. So we say good, the end of the that's year. That's a good statement. And then I'll come back at the end of the year <laughs> and say, well, actually, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, yeah. So I, f- I know. Yeah. I, I feel sorry. Not for me. I feel sorry for those older women, as you spoke about already, somebody in their 90s. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe somebody in their 70s, their 80s even, and that money to them, you get them a nice little holiday, you know, before they pop off the coil. You know what I mean? And I just think that'd Absolutely. be, do you know what I mean? It'll be something, something, something back something. for all the trauma to that they've put gone into through. your hand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I am a big believer in hope and I do hope that these things will happen. And, you know, the minister did say, I am committed to delivering the payment scheme as quickly as possible and to keeping you updated mm. on progress. In this regard, yeah, there we are. a couple yeah. of months yeah. of progress. We'll see. We'll see. Well, by the way, Alison, before we go, I'm going to be talking to Martin in a few minutes ago, who was briefly on the air with us last night. And the theme of our show tonight, I thought I'd ask you, seems we're on a friendly basis, on a one-to-one basis, and nobody else is listening at the moment, just us two. Right? <laughs> what are we're, you going to ask? <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about missed connections, right? So Martin was on last night and he told us that he was diagnosed with a tumour two years ago and he went to hospital and the nurse that was tending to him, and this is how he described her, he said she had the most beautiful eyes and beautiful face. And he said, I went in then to be looked after and I came back out and I was chatting to her for a few minutes, but I never thought of asking her out. And he said, so I, I basically, he said, I didn't have an appointment, but went back the following week to see was she there and she wasn't. And he described her last night in so much detail. But he described her to the other nurses and nobody knew who she was. So she might have been a temp. She might have been just somebody from a different department. And he's two years looking for her. And oh, he, stuff. The one that got away. Yeah, the one that got away. That's it. So, Alison, have you ever had a misconnection? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever had the one that got away? No. No. No, I, I don't believe in that stuff. I think that... If it's going to happen, it'll happen. Right. Um, and if you've missed the opportunity, then, you know, really, mm-hmm. you should move on with your life. <laughs> so true. <laughs> That's it. Blunt and to the point. Spent two years looking for her. Yeah. When really he could have met somebody beautiful that's standing right in front of him and he's missed that opportunity. In plain sight. Um, yeah. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you have to live in the present. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if it's for you, it won't go by you, I think. That's what my mother used to say. To if it's for you, it won't pass you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. just, I think, yeah, there's plenty of people standing right in front of you that he's probably missing. And, and I delight in the present, as I always say. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed, Alison O'Reilly, and I appreciate you. And that story will be coming. When I say I appreciate you, appreciate you coming on the air. I appreciate <laughs> you as well, Alison. <laughs> I appreciate you too, Niall. And, uh, mutual appreciation. Uh, <laughs> there's a mutual appreciation. <laughs> uh, what, what, is, what, what are you writing about tomorrow in the Irish Examiner, by the way? What's your big story tomorrow? Just curious now. RTE. Um, Tell me it's RTE. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> will Ryan Tupperty be back on the air on Monday? Who knows? No, do you know, I've been writing about that awful tragedy in St. Michael's College. Oh, my God, the two leaving third students, every parent's nightmare that went away to, oh, the, gosh, to the Greek yes. island of Eos and died. 
Um, so I've been covering that and uh, I just, I, the, the second boy, Andrew O'Donnell, was laid to rest today and I just, I I don't know if anybody knows Father Paddy Moran, but you should try and speak to him. He's, his his speeches um, at the both services for Max Wall on Monday and Andrew O'Donnell today, I have never heard anything like them. He spoke directly to the students who were on the island with these two boys who died and it was just so powerful, absolutely yeah. inspiring Profound, and heartbreaking yeah. at the same time. Yeah, mm. really, really. It takes a really special person to be able to put words together like that yeah. to young people. I thought he was incredible. But RTE rumbles on. It really does. I think we'll get another week out of it. Oh, just... sick of it now at this stage. Just Ryan, just give back the money and just be done with it. <laughs> just be done with it. By the way, just very quick. Uh, Alison, I'm keeping the ages now. Alison, just very quickly. So Ryan and Noel. Did you watch it? Mm. Who didn't? Tubs in the pub. Yeah, so people watch it. It was a hashtag trending. Tubs in the pubs. So exciting, wasn't it? Okay, yeah. I I did, yeah. Okay, so your honest opinion, right? Did he come out of it worse or better than he went into it? I think he did okay. I mean, there was a lot of cringy points, you know. Oh, um, think about the children. He was, <laughs> oh, man, the children. And I mean, I tell you, my son is 13. He couldn't give a damn about the Late Late Toy Show host <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. So I just, you know, I just thought, I'm sorry, like, no, I know kids that age and they couldn't give a damn about you as yeah. a host. And you shouldn't be speaking about yourself like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You're not a saviour. You're a presenter of a big show. Yes, absolutely. But... My, the kids don't know you. I, th- I thought if he had a, if he had to just come out from the very start and okay, he talked about all the untruths, right? But it, and yeah. Kevin Backhurst is going to address all those untruths because RT contested a lot of that, right? But if he had to just come out and said, okay, I technically didn't take a pay cut because I got this little sweet deal on the side with Renault, and although I'm claiming it's a separate deal and I'm self-employed inverted commas. It really was compensation for the cut that I got because RT were guaranteeing to pay it. And if they just had been honest about it, because yeah. I'm going to say honest about it, you know, and just mea culpa, look, I understand to a lot of people that could be perceived as greed. And for that, I'm truly sorry. I, I, yeah, I think I he would have come out of it so I, much better. Uh, I think people appreciate that level of honesty. Just, you know, I'm after messing the whole thing up. I'm really sorry. I, like, you know, this is the way it is. And I don't think his agent came across well. No, um, no. And I think, you know, the crux of it, you know, um, but I don't think Noel Kelly came across well at all. And, and the way they spoke about that kind of money, like it was pennies, mm. it was infuriating mm. uh, to listen to, particularly when, you know, the, the people on his team are on pittance. Yeah. Um, so we know what the money's like in radio. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I just, but the yeah, only thing I will I, say in Ryan's defence, right, and I've said this before, I think he's a really nice guy. I've met him on numerous occasions, right? He shouldn't have been the poster boy for the whole crisis. And and unfortunately, no, he was. No, it's, it's, yeah, well, you see, he's, he was presenting the biggest show on television and it's money. So he was going to be in the spotlight. Um, but like anything, you know, we tend to move on. And I think we will move on. I think he did okay and he might survive it. I don't know about his agent. Uh, I thought he came across very arrogant. Mm. And uh, I just don't understand how, you know, he's got that level of control, it seems, in RTE. Mm. Um, well, he claims he doesn't. He says he's rarely been in RTE yeah, you know, and, and never had a cup of coffee. Wonder, you know, you have to wonder, like, that level of money and that bargaining and everything. I mean, it just sounds like they were so inexperienced 
dealing with this agent, yeah. you know, yeah. and that hard bargaining wasn't going on at all. It was more begging. And it just came across just too big of money and taxpayers' money to, to be thrown around like that. And it mm. sickened so many people. But I think um, while there were so many cringy moments and the toy man and the people and the sick children, oh, I don't want to hear any of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody's a saint for presenting the Late Late Show. Yeah. However, I think he did okay. I think he did. Will he be back on radio on Monday? No, yeah, because there seemed, there seemed to be a little bit of a threat. Now, maybe I, I kind of interpreted that wrong. But when he said, I, I might be out of a job by Monday, I get the impression that, and this is just me now, this is just my thinking, I'm thinking out loud here, that something is going on in the background that we're not privy to because he's an independent company and he's entitled to privacy in that respect, any negotiations he has within reason, right? But I think, personally, that there's a bit of a a debacle going on between him and RTE currently at the moment as to whether he's coming back or not and that he's more or less said to RTE, well, either I'm back on Monday or I'm not back at all. I get that impression that that's going on and that decision has to be made by Friday. I get I from, from what he said. By Why would he say that? I, I, I could be out of a job on Friday. That didn't well, make I any think, sense. Yeah, I suppose. So, well, I suppose Kevin Backhurst has gone in there now, and they, he has to change, and changes have to be made, and decisions have to be made. And he, I think, he knows that you can't let these things linger. I don't think Ryan is holding them over a barrel. I don't get that impression. Well, no, not holding um, them over a barrel, but just saying, look, I want my job back, and I want to know by Friday. Or decide. Yeah, yeah decide by Friday. Friday. Mm. Okay, He's because it was funny he said that. That's all. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I do see your point. Yeah, I mm. do. It'll be interesting, though. I do think that decisions have to be made sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. I think he'll survive it, though. I think he will be back. I don't think he'll be back soon, though. Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Oh,